I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Lodge number 693. Welcome to Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, making exercise a cornerstone of your daily routine, brethren, because Freemasonry is work. And when you put in more and more work on yourself, you get closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic Muscle, we give you more light, but no light weights. We're here to pump you up, body, mind, and soul. Welcome back, brethren. How have you been? I hope you had an awesome weekend. We've had the Coachella Festers down here uh, starting last week. This is the second week of Coachella Fest. They've been tearing shit up over here crashing into walls and car accidents and people passing out and that always happens the first thing i want to take care of here is real quick a couple of uh episodes back i mentioned a book a little uh, weightlifting book by peewee peery raider and the book is called the raider master bodybuilding and weight gaining system this book came out in 1946 and it was way way ahead of its time and it was talking about, you know, six small meals, five to six small meals throughout the day, uh, carbohydrates and protein, uh, different kinds of body types, and espousing the virtues of virtuous education, the virtues of the squat, particularly the 20 rep squat, the milk and squats routine, basically, is what it was called back then, because a lot of people back then had cows, you know, family cows, so they would get their milk. And through experimentation, these guys realized that by drinking milk, they, you know, their bodies recovered, they felt better, they were getting bigger, and they didn't have the science to back up what they were, what they were, uh, there's an ambulance right there, I guess someone went down, down in the Coachella Fest, the festers out there. Anyhow, they didn't have the science to back it up, but they understood that the what they were noticing was that they were getting bigger stronger and it helped them to continue to make progress by drinking milk and later on we find out right that it's got plenty of calories protein the right kind of carbohydrates if it's good for the calf right it's good for the for the person but uh jack lane was vehemently against it because he said that eventually the the calf would get weaned off of milk and began to eat like a regular cow so why are we drinking you know milk and it can't be that good for us so anyhow the book was called or the little booklet was called uh, peewee raiders master bodybuilding and weight gaining system and again it, it espoused the the virtues and benefits of the 20 rep squat routine and then uh, it would uh, followed by like five or six compound movements. You know, the standing barbell, military press, um, a bar dip, the bench press. The bench press was kind of becoming, you know, mainstream, but not really. But the guys who, who were experimenting with it loved it. Then the row, the standing row or the bent over row. Um, very little 
arm work, but if you if you want it, you know, to satisfy your ego, yeah, you got some arm work in there. Uh, calves, um, crunches, and then, you know, rest, rest and eating. All right. Today's article that I'm going to be reading is an article from the Ars Quarter Coronary, um, the inaugural paper delivered to the Ars, the uh, Quarter Coronary Lodge number 2076 in on uh, 9th, November 9th, 2000. And this had to do with the 10 theories of Freemasonry, the origins of Freemasonry. And some of you might have heard some of them. Some of you might not have, not have heard of any of them. But I'm going to start. I'm going to forego the introductions and all that. I'm going to get right to it. The very first theory is Harry Carr transitional theory. I did mention these the last couple of episodes uh, through the monastic origins. And this is what they have to say. It says in, in uh, Ars Quarter Coronati, Issue 81, back in 1968, Carr commented, There has never been a paper read to the Lodge or printed in the transactions that attempted to deal with the whole broad pattern of ritual development from its earliest stages up to the time when it was virtually stabilized at the Union of the Grand Lodges in 1813 and in the following decades. It developed in Britain out of the building trades and fraternities whose history goes back some 600 years in England. Carr placed reliance on the old charges beginning 1390 and proceeding up to the 18th century. He also placed reliance on the fact that within the London Masons Company, there existed a separate select group called the Exception, whose function was to make Masons, hence accepted Masons. No further emphasized, he further emphasized the pattern of craft ritual development to add substance to his contention, concluding, I do insist, however, that our present-day speculative Freemasonry is directly descended from the operative Masonry whose beginnings we can trace back to the earliest record of organization among Masons in 1356. In our quarter, Coronati number 91 in 1978, Carr clearly defined his view once again. The transition from operative to speculative Masonry was not the takeover of an old business under new management. It was the original business, which gradually changed its character according to the needs of its time, but with perfect continuity throughout. Theory number two came from Eric Ward, original birth theory. That's what he called it. And it says, Ward distinguished between Carr's emphasis on ritual development and that of the birth of speculative masonry. He wrote, if ritual be the Alpha and Omega of our society, it must seem a quite natural corollary that speculative Freemasonry as we understand it also originated some 600 years ago. His views may be summed up as A. There is paucity of evidence that the free and accepted Masons of today had their roots in the medieval craft of building in stone. B. Accepted Masonry as evidenced by the inner circle of the London Company of Masons was a new movement which emerged in 17th century England, free from the independence of the trade. Ward considered that after the dismal days of the Commonwealth, new Masons of culture, 
start of the Royal Society, interest in scientific medicine, study and republication of old books and manuscripts. They borrowed formularies of the old charges, used the tools of operative masons as objects of symbolism, and even adopted the precepts of the Regis Manuscript of 1390. You see that, guys? No matter how much we try to get away from the Regis Manuscript, we keep, we keep being brought back to center to this manuscript, which is crucial. C. There must be a distinction between the age of the ritual and the age of the speculative craft. And D. Masonic developments in England and Scotland prior to the 18th century are quite separate entities in their own right with their own separate and distinct modes of development. All right, now we get to another theory, and that is from Frederick W. Seal Kuhn, The Theory of Conspiracy to Fellowship. The very next volume of the transactions focuses our attention on a new concept. Seal Kuhn first questions whether speculative Freemasonry existed in the 17th century and discusses pieces of evidence from four sources. A. Elias Ashmole, a royalist, admitted to Masonry in an occasional lodge at Warrington in 1646. This is only a diary note. Ward had already questioned whether this was a lodge at all or a meeting of friends for making Masons by commission, a procedure already common in Scotland. The next mention of Freemasonry in Ashmole's diary is 36 years later. B. Randall Holmes III was made a Mason in a lodge in Chester in 1665. Was this also really a lodge or a convivial gathering of leading tradesmen? just after the Restoration, reveling in the absence of Cromwellian repression. C. Robert Plott. In the Natural History of Staffordshire, 1686, refers to the Society of Freemasons spread all over the nation. D. John Aubrey, in Lives, 1686, referred to the fraternity of adopted Masons of Freemasons. After providing a good deal of evidence, Seal Kuhn summarizes that originally these lodges were cover for conspiratorial meetings of royalists who were identified by secret signs. They lay low during the Commonwealth period. They came into the light of day with the Restoration and now used these lodges to foster unity, comfort, and goodwill. Hence, the message was changed to good fellowship, good feasting and prohibition of discussion of religion and politics. Why would these individuals select a Masonic theme? Seal Kuhn explains it as the natural product of a burgeoning interest in archaeology and architecture. Colin Dyer, The Religious-Based Theory. A classic paper which still exists a good deal of, of excites a good deal of its discussion. Scottish Influences. Dyer felt very doubtful that there were Scottish influences from the building trade. The reason he gives are, A, until the Union, Scotland and England were very much enemy countries. B, building practices in Scotland and England were different. C, it is very doubtful that Scottish operative masonry could have influenced English speculative Freemasonry. D, Speculative Freemasonry in England must have been well established by the middle 1660s. If Ashmole was made a Mason in 1646, others must have already been Freemasons. Religious Influences 
After Henry VIII's break with Rome in 1534, there were hardly any doctor, doctrinal change until Edward V, 1547, Calvinist theology became official. This extreme thinking was reversed by Mary I to another extreme, fundamentalist Roman Catholicism. With the accession of Elizabeth I, 1558, the nation split three ways. A, a great majority found a conscientious way of conforming to the 39 Articles of Religion of the Church of England, Anglicans. B, some Protestants would not espouse a church containing an Episcopal hierarchy and remained on the fringe, extreme Protestants. C, those to wish to remain faithful to Rome, one group outwardly Protestant but at heart Catholic, another totally faithful to the Church of Rome, Catholics. Dyer believes that the concept of speculative Freemasonry took place early in the reign of Elizabeth from uh, 1560 to 1580, and that it had a religious base. It was a deliberate creation, almost certainly of a secret nature, and not connected with building or building industry. He then analyzes the Grand Lodge manuscript, which starts with the Trinitarian invocation. Hence, he concludes that Freemasonry, as we know it, had to have a Christian origin. The ritual, from the beginning, was affected by the Trinity and not by the building trade. Also, it is to be noted that by the late 1500s, all three groups mentioned above were Trinitarians. The Unitarians were to come much later. The harsh Cromwellian Puritanism replaced this spirit of accommodation in Elizabeth's long reign. After the Restoration in 1660, when the Episcopal Church of England was reestablished, we find words from the writings of Milton and Bunyan surreptitiously emerging in Masonic ritual. To this evidence must be added the facts that Brother James Anderson was a Calvinist and Brother Desagulier was of a Huguenot descent. Brother Neville Cryer supported Dyer's contention. He further emphasized that the distinctiveness of the Cook Manuscript and the Grand Lodge Manuscript did not support the transitional theory. The inclusion of Solomon's Temple in our ritual would have been from the Geneva Bible, a Calvinist influence. A. Cosby F. Jackson, the Rosicrucian origin. Brother Jackson proposed that two fraternities, speculative Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, were started within a few years of each other by men of similar intellectual qualities. Both had similar aims, self-improvement and religious mysticism, and both started in the 17th century. Rosicrucianism spread quickly with ideas drawn from alchemy, whereas Freemasonry, whose ideas possessed a different appeal, spread more slowly as a consequence. There were only two plausible links. A, the importance of Christian piety and self-improvement. B, members of both persuasions may also have belonged to the newly founded Royal Society, established by gentlemen of culture. A, Jeffrey Markham, the associate theory. Brother Jeffrey Markham notes that by the year 1723, there were widespread groups of men not engaged in the building trades, but with convivial backgrounds. They were diffuse in age and social background, but maintaining harmonious relationships with a common loyalty to government, exclusion of religion and politics in their meetings, and practical charity to members. 
They had adopted some of the ceremonies and dress of the operative masons, the building trade. Brother Markham wonders how this association could have been perfected in the 1700s, particularly as the evidence of Ashmole, Plot, and Aubrey points to the existence of speculative Mason, Freemasonry sometime before 1646. He concludes that church building were the donors, the nobility, the providers, the gentry, and the builders, lower classes, could all have been associated in a common and noble enterprise. These associations could have led to the non-Masons, non-builders, becoming associate members. When church building ceased about 1540, these associates could have become speculative, further supporting the origin in Elizabethan time. Brother Markham, after an extensive production of evidence and discussion, states in another paper, one can thus see non-operative masonry as an amalgam of ideas deriving primarily from an association on a widespread basis of laymen with operative masons before 1540, and secondarily, but quite significantly, from the religious guilds, necessarily before the extinction of these guilds in 1547. Cyril and Batham, Monastic Origins. Batham first remarks on the transitional theory enunciated by Carr. He remarks that this theory was based on the idea that men not actively engaged in the operative mason's trade, that is building, were admitted into operative mason's lodges. As the mason's trade declined, these outsiders became sufficiently numerous to be able to take control of the lodges. By entirely changing the trade aspects, they were able to change the ceremonies and form of the lodge and so gradually bring about the evolution of our present-day non-operative or speculative Freemasonry. Batham cites two pieces of evidence as against the transitional theory. A. Except for one lodge at the border, more Scottish than English, there is no evidence that any non-operative was admitted into an operative lodge in England. B. There is no evidence that any English operative lodge ever changed to a non-operative basis. Now, Batham expounds his own theory. When England was just emerging from the Middle Ages and creating a new society, there were inner sancta, with membership restricted to senior and learned brethren. On the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII in 1538, followed by disendowment of the religious fraternities in 1547, some of these sancta survived as sex secret cells until the late 16th or early 17th century. When conditions became more favorable after the Restoration, they emerged, expanded, and evolved into the form of speculative Freemasonry known to us today. The carefully guarded signs of the secret societies were partially incorporated into the new society. He concludes cautiously, I cannot prove this. Neither is there proof of the transition theory nor of any other theory of Masonic origins that has been suggested from time to time. Carlisle Richard S.E. Sandbach, Darwinian Concept. In his usual erudite and logical manner, Brother Sandbach considers the how, when, where, who, why of the origin of Freemasonry. A. 
Operative Freemasons offered safe lodging and freedom from betrayal to enemies or rogues to one possessed of the recognition secrets even though there were no operative lodges. This safe haven may have been extended even to those who wished to be made Masons, the passport theory. B. In 1690, the age of reason was dawning. Social contacts in the main areas of population would lead to discussion amongst Masons who had been made in these havens and created a feeling of independence. C. The Masonic movement in the late 16th century also may have been influenced by religious factors leading to the question as to why and in what form did Masonic lodges survive into the 16th century. And D. In the world of social evolution, as in Darwinian evolution, Events are more often shaped by circumstances, social and environmental conditions, rather than by politics. The only comment one may make is that in On the Origin of Species, Darwin explains how individual species evolve, but not how new species originate. Speciation remains deeply puzzling to this day. Maybe this is still true of the original Freemason as well. One is reminded of Alexander Pope's verse, Nature and nature's law lay hid in light. In night, God said, let Newton be, and all was light. To which Sir J.C. Squire added, it did not last, the devil howling ho. Let Einstein be, restored the status quo. Michael Spur, The Age of Enlightenment Theory. In a very elegant discourse, Spur suggested that there was a two-way traffic between the principles of Freemasonry and the ideals of the Enlightenment. These were the concepts of brotherhood, equality, respect for the law of the land, loyalty to the king, and the belief in a supreme being, previously emphasized by Brother Markham. This theory supports the evolutionary aspect of Freemasonry, but really not its origin. Michael Bajent, The Royal Society Theory. Brother Bajent has concluded, There is no origin. It is a mythical beast. And he considers speculative masonry's connection with hermetic thought and with the establishment of the Royal Society of London. In the discussion, various objections were raised. A. Apart from the all-seeing eye and the hexalpha, the symbols of Freemasonry have no other connection to hermetic thought. B. The members of the Royal Society and Freemasonry were few, certainly Ashmole, Moray, and King Cardine, very doubtfully Evelyn, Rand, and Newton. However, none of these would have impacted on the origins of Freemasonry. Summary. Ten theories from the pages of Ars Quarter in the 20th century have been noted. Surely there are many more, in thought or in preparation for research or publication. As the 20th century ends, the origins of speculative masonry still remain shrouded in mystery, even though many of the veils have been lifted in the pages of Ars Quarter Coronari. One final word. May I be permitted to offer the concept that in discounting the transitional theory, for which little support exists. It may be that we 
would have greater success if we looked to a multifactorial origin rather than to a single one. In different parts of the country and in different circumstances, each of these theories may have played a part in different amounts. When we are eating fruit salad, each spoonful will have a differing quantity of apples, oranges, bananas, pineapples, and maybe even passion fruit. Let me draw another analogy. When one travels by a fast boat from Naples to Capri, nearing the end of the journey, one sees two great rocks jutting out from the sea. When the craft turns to enter the harbor, one finds there are three rocks. Similarly, our viewpoint on one or more of the origins will be different at different times and from different angles. If we can accept this fruit salad concept and a multifactorial approach, we could agree on a unified approach which may lead us to our goal. This is not a new thought to be propounded by me. The truth, is, the truth lies buried in a volume of Ars Corda Coronati, as do most Masonic truths. In the very first volume, one of the founders of this distinguished lodge, the Reverend A.F.A. A. Woodford, said, All thinkers and students are struck with one great difficulty attendant on Masonic research, the impossibility of accounting for its origin, or in anyone, distinct line of existence and development. It is in truth much more probable that Freemasonry does not depend on any one single channel of progress, but it may have several coexistent and convergent sources of origin. The search must continue for a unifying consensus on the origins. Let us hope that the dawn of the 21st century will lead to progress in our knowledge of what Brother Sonbach has stressed. The evolution of speculative Freemasonry as we know it today and what Brother Markham has so convincingly demonstrated that general historian must join we Masons in the endeavor to put Freemasonry in its proper perspective in the historical, evolutionary, social, and environmental factors which have possibly all played a part. Not only this, but that 20th century volumes of our quarter coronati are replete with thoughts for further Masonic research. Until then, we may commune with Isaac Newton. I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself, I seem to have been only a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary. Wilts, the great ocean of truly lay all undiscovered before me. And there you have it, brethren, 10 different theories on the origins of Freemasonry. And I think as time passes on, if you're a Mason, if you've been studying a lot of these books, origins theories, you begin to draw your own conclusions in your own way, you know, in the privacy of your own home or maybe during uh, some conversations with uh, good friends. And just like this brief article, you begin to see that that was just 10 theories. There's way more than that. Is it that it's a, it's a combination of, of all of these? Is it that some of these, like they mentioned again, you know, that Brother Carr's theory is that there is no proof of it. 
their own brothers of this research community, the Ars Cordonari, uh, is admitting that, yeah, there is no proof of that, of the transition theory. And so you can't get stuck on one, just one theory that, th it, that explains everything as to how we came about. And this is part of the reason why Masonic muscle came into existence, because the only way to strengthen our Masonic muscle and the knowledge of the mysterious origins of Freemasonry is to study the different theories, because the origin is truly mysterious. And yes, we've been connected with a lot of conspiracy theories. And yes, uh, the fraternity has been accused of everything under the sun, almost like from its inception, right? almost right from the beginning. But it's up to you, brethren, to continue to exercise your little lizard brains. Get out there. Begin to pop open some of these books. Begin to read and investigate so that you can now have some intelligent conversations with a prospective member, uh, a member that just became a member, uh, a long-time member, a past master, and, and maybe you can present it to your lodge and beginning to begin to improve the quality of the education in your lodge. Because as you can see, there's been a law written, but maybe you haven't been introduced to some of this. So, it is up to all of us. It really is. And everybody definitely has the opportunity to improve the quality of the experience in your lodge. And it has to do with your education, how much you know, how much you've been exposed to, how much time you've given to contemplate what you've been learning and then share that in a back and forth method like we've been doing at Palm Springs Lodge, you know, trivium style, we call it, but it's Socratic method. And then you, by you sharing, you're also learning, but there comes a time where you have to sit, sit down now and listen, because we all become students. We never stop being students. And with that, I am out. And remember, brethren, that these strong sessions are calculated to inculcate in the mind of the novitiate the importance of subduing our passions and improving ourselves in masonry, beating the attentive ear with the sound of the instructive tongue, endeavoring to add to the common stock of knowledge and understanding, effectively spreading the cement of knowledge and wisdom. Mm -hmm.